Welcome to Takeaway Science, another in the series of short podcasts produced by BLAST at the Open University. There's a definite earth science bias to this particular podcast. Later, Sarah Davis catches up with a unique Open University project that enables OU students with mobility problems actually to take part in a geology field trip in the Scottish Highlands. We also have OU senior lecturer Dr Mark Brandon talking to postgraduate student Wes Fraser about his, that's Mark's, research on the melting ice sheets in the Antarctic. But to open proceedings, let's eavesdrop on a conversation between OU academic fellow Dr Will Gosling and research fellow Dr Pallavi Anand. In it, they discuss, amongst other things, how an examination of the Earth's history can give us a better understanding of what climate change has in store for us. The reason why we study past climate change because it helps us understanding or at least uh, reducing the uncertainties for the future climate predictions. Since we don't know how the response will be for the increasing greenhouse gases in the world we are living at the moment um, and how the, the different systems uh, in the different earth system will respond to the rising greenhouse gases, we have, to, um, we have to look in the past and give examples or how much uncertainties we can put into the system. For example, how the climate will change on a decadal basis, what will happen to the ice sheets, or how the vegetation will respond to the greenhouse gases or how the regional rainfall will change in warm climate. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very, very important. How do we obtain these records of past environmental change? What do, we, what do we need to look at to be able to do that? Yes, for that we, go, um, we can look on the land system, so terrestrial um, system, for example, look in the lake sediments, which you, will, you are involved in. And uh, we can also go to the oceans, where there are lots of sediments preserved, and they are um, they are time recorders. So you can go back, uh, you can log it, and then you see the sediments deposited in different environment and different time slices. What you're saying is that these uh, natural records of environmental change have been accumulating over millions of years and incorporating things within them from uh, the environment around them and what as, as paleoecologists people who are interested in old ecology or paleoclimatologists people who are interested in past climate change can do is go along and extract these fossils from the uh, sedimentary record and examine them to make interpretations about past environments and climate. So we can we can start to correlate the different records from the, the different different times and the sort of information that I'm interested in extracting from the terrestrial records is information which we find in the um, fossil pollen record. So there's a whole range of different proxies from terrestrial and from your marine sources which can help to build up this picture of past global change. Yes, and I guess if, once we go back in time, uh, we have, by means of plate tectonics, we can reconstruct the paleo latitude and longitude where these 
wherever we go, sites are, were in the past. And therefore, we, we understand about how the circulation, surface circulation, as well as deep circulation in the ocean were at that time. And also, what would have been constraining factors, for example, some of the evolutionary information we gain from the, after the breaking up of the continent is also from the fossils which are preserved in this, these sediments, for example. Okay, so understanding all these different proxies tells us a lot about how the Earth systems have worked and how um, the climate is functioning and the way things might react in the future. Yes, and I think one thing is very important to understand in this field. It's not just one particular proxy that we look at. It's the several proxies and interplay between ecology, environment, um, you know, preservation, and lots of other factors you have to take into account before you reach to a conclusion how the temperature or any particular parameter of the environment was in the past. So we have all these different methods of looking at, at past environmental change or sort of the, the records of what was there. But it's not until we can start plugging these together that we can start thinking about the sort of feedbacks and mechanisms that are operating as a global system. So we need all these different mm -hmm. strands of evidence to get that, um, that bigger picture yes. about, about the Earth systems. Yes, because it's very important to understand the world we are living in now and creating is nothing like what we have seen before. For example, one could take analogy of rising temperature and CO2 for the uh, Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, but the issue is that then back then you didn't have ice sheets, but at the moment we have ice sheets. So there is a natural phenomena by which the climate goes in a cycle yeah. but when when we do to the environment extra bit mm -hmm. we don't know how the responses will be therefore it's more important to understand different parts of the time when mm -hmm. different conditions changed so if we can run our model predictions backwards and verify what we can observe in the uh, in the past environments then we can have more confidence that the predictions that we're running into the future uh, are more likely to be correct. Doctors Will Gosling and Pallavi Anand from the Open University's Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences chewing the fat about the geological record of environmental change. And believe it or not, there's an OU course entitled just that. The Geological Record of Environmental Change is a third-level course comprising three books with study commentaries. DVDs, and a returnable kit of rock specimens. The first book explores the nature of sedimentary sequences produced by changes of relative sea level and the likely roles played by climatic and tectonic processes. The second book looks at the greenhouse world of the Cretaceous and examines tropical-subtropical marine environments, high-latitude terrestrial environments, the extent and effect of large igneous provinces and meteorite impacts on the environment, and the mass extinction event that took place at the end of the Cretaceous period. The course's third book documents the Ice Age and offers possible explanations for the natural climatic changes that have taken place over the last 2.6 million years.
Well, if you want to learn more about this or any other OU science course, log on to WW3, that's the numeral 3, www.open.ac.uk forward slash study. Click on the link to science on the right-hand side of the page and follow the appropriate links. In the next sequence in this Takeaway Science podcast, Open University lecturer Sarah Davis talks to some of the people behind a quite remarkable Open University project that enables students with mobility problems actually to take part in a practical third-level geology field trip in the Scottish Highlands. Over to Sarah for the details. Okay, so I'm here with Mark David, and uh, Mark's our technical um, expert in the field here today, and he's set up the equipment for today's field course. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about what we've got here today? Sure. What we're doing is we're helping a mobility-impaired student uh, get um, to access a a geology field site that they might otherwise have difficulty getting to. It's very rocky rocky foreshore, and you can probably hear the sea in the background. What we've done is we've set up a little network. We have a small digital uh, camera and laptop um, at each end, one with a student and one with a geologist who's actually at the field site. Uh, We call them the Sherpa. And um, they're connected together using a wireless network and um, this allows the two parts, the student and the field geologist, to talk to each other. We use walkie-talkies for that. And um, the student can see what the geologist is doing uh, with a video camera which is built into the laptop. So as the geologist moves around, they can see where they're moving. And this gives them a sense of presence. and gives them an idea of the general broad landscape. So it's very important for the geology students to get a sense of the landscape. When they're getting into an area or getting close to an area that they want to look at in more detail, the student can guide the geologist to um, look at a specific uh, close-up, perhaps, a rock outcrop, and ask them to take a high-resolution digital still image, which is then sent down the network and onto the student's machine so they can look at it. The student works with a geology tutor, so the geology tutor sits with the student um, back at, we could call it, base. Hi Mark, it's Clive. You might, um, given the resolution on the camera, uh, you may need to give us a clue as to what rocks um, uh, or what we're looking at in terms of the dark and the light bands in particular. Okay, over. The uh, next site, which is about half an hour's drive, at a place called Skatey Shore. It's a beautiful little bay. Um, the weather's cleared up a little bit and wouldn't say it's exactly bright but it's it's nice and dry at the moment so the students have moved on to the next site and are looking looking at the geology of this site there's a, a large fault line that runs right through the bay so they're going to be looking at both sides of this fault line right i'm here with uh, john marshall our student this week and uh, clive mitchell who's one of the tutors who's been sitting with John um, and helping him out. OK, John, so um, so you've been jo- enjoying this week? Um, yes, how's the geology been going? It's um, very interesting. There's a lot to learn and uh, a lot of interest, you know, being given out by the tutors. So you've been able to access some sites, but um, for the rest of the sites you've either been sitting on the shore or, or sitting in your car and um, getting messages and, and images relayed to you. Yeah, that's right. It's... Uh, 
a complicated system, but it's working very well. Um, it's a new system, and there are one or two hiccups, but it's they're being ironed out, so um, every day gets better, and um, the learning curve increases, so, uh, you know, we, we, things are improving all, all the way along. Okay then, so uh, Clive, can you tell us a little bit about the geology of this region, region and what the students are looking at? Um, throughout the week the students get to look at some important parts of the, the Grampian Highlands in Scotland and um, they're, with those bits of information are able to see how the whole setting of the uh, Grampian Mountains were formed in um, uh, about 400 and odd million years ago. And the, the the important part about where we are just now looking over the golf course at uh, Stonehaven is that uh, here we see the Highland Boundary Fault, which is literally the line that runs from here across to the other side of Scotland through the south end of Loch Lomond and into Northern Ireland uh, that marks the southern limit of the, of the Grampian Highlands and was a key... Um, what's called a, a terrain boundary, a, a major discontinuity in um, in the crustal um, continental fragments that were floating around, as it mm. were, at the time, which all came together to produce the Grampian Highlands. So this is a really um, key structural um, component. Sarah Davis from the Open University's Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences, talking with the man who designed the technology behind the project, Mark Gaved, an Open University student making use of it, John Marshall, and one of the geology associate lecturers teaching the course, Clive Mitchell. The OU course featured in that sequence is actually called Ancient Mountains, Practical Geology in Scotland. But the course's core is a six-day residential school at which students study the field evidence for the growth and demise of an ancient mountain range formed more than 400 million years ago a mountain range that actually formed the basis of today's Scottish highlands. At third level, the course is designed to provide students with the practical fieldwork and complementary laboratory experience that they'll need for an open university qualification specialising in earth sciences. In particular, Ancient Mountains Practical Geology in Scotland introduces the study of igneous, metamorphic and structurally complex rocks in situ, and actually integrates this with laboratory work. As usual, if you want to find out more about the course, log on to WW3, remember that's the numeral 3, www.open.ac.uk forward slash study, click on the link to science on the right-hand side of the page, and follow the appropriate links. In this podcast's final sequence, we feature the first part of a conversation that Wes Fraser a postgraduate research student from the Open University's Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences, had with OU oceanographer and senior lecturer in environmental science, Dr Mark Brandon. In it, they chat about the research that Mark's doing on the melting ice sheets in the Antarctic. The second part of this conversation features in another Takeaway Science podcast. Here's Wes to introduce the first sequence. Okay, so Mark, can you uh, briefly explain sort of what you actually do as a researcher? Well, my job in the OU is actually two parts. One part of it's teaching, one part's the research part. Uh, so just like in a conventional university, we actually go out and do research. And what I actually do is polar oceanography, which means I go out to polar regions. Since 19, I've been in this business now since 1990, 
but probably since 1994 I've concentrated on going to the Antarctic which I've found is a lot uh, safer and a lot nicer than going to the Arctic. Why is that? Well the obvious one is you know there, you don't have any polar bears in, in the Antarctic <laughs> and the other reason I prefer the Antarctic is because ironically it's uh, the sorts of the parts I work in it's much warmer in the Antarctic than it is in the Arctic it's far too cold for an old man like me. <laughs> So you feature, you focus mostly on Antarctic research? Antarctic research at the moment, and what I've been working on is polar oceans. Um, so what I actually go down is I measure, uh, the, uh, well, I measure the density structure of the water, and the way I do that is I lower, I, I'll go down on ships, or, or I go and work on sea ice and dig a hole through the ice into the ocean, and I lower, lower equipment into the sea, and the equipment uh, is connected to the surface through a wire, and it measures the temperature and the amount of salt in the water. Um, and I also have these really neat little bottles which can take water samples at any depth. So what I've been doing is going down on ships to the edge of the Antarctic ice shelf front and lowering instruments down into the water off the edge of the ice and measuring the temperature of the water that's actually flowing and touching the ice on the edge of the Antarctic continent. That sounds fascinating. It is fascinating. One thing, that ha uh, one thing I should say about Antarctica is actually really made up of two parts. There's a, a continent of Antarctica, which is land, and on top of that continent is ice, a large amount of ice. The average ice thickness on the Antarctic continent is probably about three and a half kilometres, which is a huge amount of ice. But where the ice meets the edge of the continent, sometimes it floats on the ice into what are called ice shelves. So we end up with large areas of ice shelf, which is, you know, ice perhaps a kilometre thick floating out in some places perhaps one or two hundred kilometres from the edge of the coast so out over the sea and with floating you know floating on seawater with seawater underneath it so what I've been doing is going to the edge of these ice shelves on research ships lowering equipment at the edge of the ice shelves and measuring the temperature and salinity of the water that is flowing underneath the ice shelf to hopefully work out how much some of them are melting so that links in with some of the recent reports that's been in the news um, about the Wilkins Ice Shelf. Well, funnily enough, the Wilkins Ice Shelf is an ice shelf that I visited last year. Really? Now, um, if, you, if you've ever seen a picture of Antarctica, it's kind of circular. And then there's this big finger of uh, land which sort of points up towards South America. And that, that sort of finger is called the Antarctic Peninsula. And in the satellite era, what we've seen is the ice shelves from the, from the northernwood extension of this peninsula moving southwards have been collapsing. So a few years ago, one called the Larsen collapsed, um, and we measured that by satellite. So what we expect to go next is an ice shelf called the King George VI and the Wilkins. So last year I was working on a research trip that was led by uh, Dr. Deborah Shoesmith from the British Antarctic Survey, where we went down to the ice shelves that we believe are most vulnerable in that part of the Antarctic, and the Wilkins is actually one of them. Now, the funny thing is, earlier I described that these ice shelves float out over the edge of Antarctica, um, and they tend to be in sort of U-shaped bays, so you get land either side and then ice across the middle. But in the Wilkins ice shelf, that's a bit, it's a bit different, because there's a series of islands with the ice shelf across all of, all of the islands, so what we did on the ship is go all the way around the Wilkins Ice Shelf and lower these instruments that would measure the temperature of salinity. So we know exactly how, what the temperature of the water and the salinity of the water going in the ice shelf, or in, going underneath the ice shelf was. 
we also know exactly what the temperature and salinity of the water coming out was. So actually, with those two measurements, we can work out exactly how much the ice shelf's melting. And those are the calculations we're doing at the moment. Unfortunately, the ice shelf's beaten us by a few weeks, and it's actually collapsing now, which is a bit of a surprise to even, you know, to, even to us. So what will actually happen when it does collapse? Well, because it's a floating ice shelf, you can do this experiment at home with uh, you know, either a glass of Coke and some ice or some gin, if that way you're inclined, <laughs> gin and ice. But if you, drop, if you have ice that's floating in water, then because the ice is floating, it's displacing the water. So as it melts, the sea level won't change. So when the ice shelf melts, it's not going to affect sea level at all. But the ice shelf itself is fled, fed by glaciers which come out over land. And these glaciers... Feed, feed into the ice shelf and it grows and it grows. But once you take the ice shelf away, the glaciers we know now are speeding up. So when the Wilkins ice shelf goes, which it's almost almost gone now, it will probably go in the next month or two. Then the glaciers over the next year or two will actually that flow into the where the Wilkins is will speed up. And because that ice is on land and not floating, it's extra ice being added to the sea. So sea level will go up. And that might not be a problem to us at the moment, but to some parts of the world, the sea level rising even a couple of centimetres can make quite a lot of difference to the viability of whether it's possible to live there. For example, Bangladesh, Tuvalu, places like that. Wes Fraser and Mark Brandon there. While we're on the subject, did you know that the OU offers a second-level course called Environmental Science? It's a course that draws together the relevant biology, chemistry, earth science and physics, and students taking it are encouraged to develop a holistic approach that encompasses the processes, links, interactions and feedback mechanisms that operate within different environments. A special feature of the course is the two virtual multimedia interactive field trips, in which students explore an area visually, observe habitats, gather data and analyse their observations. By the end of the course, you should be able to lead a group of students through a new virtual environment, make critical analyses of landforms, soils and water flows, identify flora and fauna habitats, and comment on anthropogenic influences on the environment and their likely consequences. To find out more about environmental science, log on to www.open.ac.uk forward slash study Click on the link to science on the right-hand side of the page and follow the appropriate links. Well, that's the end of another Takeaway Science podcast brought to you by BLAST at the Open University. For other podcasts in this series, revisit the Open University Science faculty website at open.ac.uk forward slash science. And if you want to find out more about some of the science outreach work carried out by the OU visit the BLAST webpages at blast.open.ac.uk. Well, that's all for now. So from me, Mike Bullivant, adios amigos. Mm-hmm.